Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to have you here this morning, and I want to welcome those who are joining us online today, which today includes my wife because I accidentally took her keys this morning. So when she left to come to church, she said, hey, I've got no way to get there. Oops. Hi, sweetie. Uh, I'll be home later. My name is Matt. I'm a pastor here at Friendship Church, and I get to bring the message about Elijah today. And I am wondering what kind of words you would use about Elijah as we have seen him in the weeks leading up to today. As you think about Elijah and how we have seen him over the last few weeks studying his life, what kind of words come to your mind? Maybe they're words like faith-filled, or maybe they're words like obedience, or words like power or words like prayerful? Are those the kinds of words that you think of when you think of what we have seen in Elijah's life? Well, today we're going to add another word to that mix, and that word is discouraged. Today, we're going to see Elijah enter into deep, deep discouragement in his life. Everyone battles discouragement at some point in their life in this world. As long as we are on this planet, there is going to be something in us that is going to be tempted towards discouragement in our life, and everybody battles it. Mother Teresa talked about her months and months and months-long battle with discouragement as she worked among the poor. When he was a young Midwestern lawyer, Abraham Lincoln all of his friends decided that it was time to take knives and razor blades out of his home because they were worried about his well-being. And he said, I am now the most miserable man living. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I fearfully believe I shall not. One of the greatest preachers of the last three centuries, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, de dealt with discouragement off and on throughout his life, and at one point reached a place of such deep discouragement in his life that in a sermon he proclaimed to his congregation that he knew there are dungeons beneath the castles of despair. Moses, Solomon, Jeremiah, Job, Jonah... All men in the scripture who either asked God to take their life or said, I wish I had never been born. Because as long as we live in this world, we are all going to battle discouragement. And we're going to see that in Elijah today. Is there something that is discouraging to you right now? Are you dealing with discouragement? Maybe related to work and what's going on at work? Maybe related to our world and what's going on around us. Maybe you're dealing with discouragement because you have someone that you love so deeply who is throwing their life away. Or because your marriage is a real struggle right now. Maybe you're dealing with discouragement because there is a sin that keeps defeating you over and over again. Anyone dealing with discouragement right now? All of us deal with discouragement at some point in our life, even Elijah. And as we have been reading about Elijah in the weeks leading up to this, we may go, really? Even Elijah? What, what have we seen from Elijah? God calls him to do something and he does it with power and righteousness. He has looked like a spiritual superman up until this point, hasn't he? And yet we are mindful of what James chapter 5 says. Not only was Elijah who's a man whose prayers were powerful, 
we see in that first line that he was a man with what? A nature like ours. Which means a nature prone to discouragement. And he is going to reach a place in our chapter today, 1 Kings chapter 19, where he is so discouraged that he asked the Lord to take his life. He doesn't want to be here anymore. And as we read this, we go, how did he get there? Think about the last two weeks. What has Elijah experienced over the last two weeks? Victory and power, right? Isn't that what he's experienced over the last two weeks? There was the fire starting contest on the top of Mount Carmel and God won. And all of Israel did what when that happened? They bowed down before the Lord and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. That was Elijah's great desire as a prophet of Israel, that everyone would bow down and declare the Lord, he is God. This is ultimate victory, ultimate celebration time for Elijah. Then he prays that it would rain and after three and a half years, rain comes on the land. And then he pulls this spirit-enabled Forrest Gump run and he outruns the king's chariot 17 miles back to the capital city. What a day. What a day of victory and power and all that is left is for Elijah to look into the camera and say, I'm going to Disney World because he's experienced nothing but victory over the course of this day. And so it's kind of surprising to us that a couple of verses into chapter 19, he's like, Lord, would you take my life? I'm done. How how does he get there? Let's spend a few minutes looking at how he gets there this morning. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1, Ahab and Elijah have both gone back to the capital city. And what do they do there? Verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Ahab never comes across as a particularly strong character in all that we read about him. And what does he do here? He runs back to the capital city and he tattles. Jezebel, you wouldn't believe it. God won the fire starting contest. God sent the rain. And Elijah killed all of the prophets of Baal. Right? He, he kind of tattles on Elijah here. And for a moment, we ask the question, what is Jezebel going to do? Is Jezebel going to fall down before God as all of Israel did and say, the Lord, he is God. Look at the fire starting contest. Look at who sent the rain. The Lord, he is God. And she is going to abandon her idols. And she and Ahab are going to lead Israel forward in single-minded devotion. Is that what is going to happen? Well, we we don't have to wait too long for a resolution to that question. Because in verse 2, we read, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, that is the prophets of Baal, by this time tomorrow. You notice the phrase, may the gods. Has she repented of her idolatry and bowed down before the one true God? Absolutely not. She is still worshiping her idols and she swears by them that she is going to put Elijah to death. What is Elijah's response to this? Then he, Elijah, was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. I don't think that Elijah got the royal reaction that he wanted. What he wanted was for the king and queen to respond as Israel did and for the whole nation being led by their leaders to move forward in single-minded devotion to God. But what he got instead were Ahab and Jezebel still very much opposed to him, to God, and saying, we're going to kill you over this. 
And in the midst of this, Elijah responds for the first time in what we have read in fear instead of in faith, doesn't he? Every time Elijah has done anything thus far as we have read about him, he's done it because God told him to. Why is he going to sit by the brook? Because God told him to. Why is he going to be with a widow inside? Because God told him to. And on and on. But for the first time, Elijah does something without God telling him to. He does it all on his own. And he responds not in faith, but in fear. And he wanders. You can see where he goes down to Beersheba on the border with Judah there. And we read, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He wanders a day further into the wilderness, and he sits down under a tree that probably looked something like this. And he tells God, I don't want to live anymore. Why? Because I'm no better than my father's. What does he mean by that? Well, let's come back to that in a few minutes. And then Elijah lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake, uh, had a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. Now, I have a friend who claims the end of verse 5 as his life verse. Right? Arise and eat. That is my, my life verse. And he is ready to be obedient to God's command to arise and eat every day of his life. You might be taking that a little bit out of context in terms of claiming a life verse. Right? But, but what do we see from Elijah here? Do you think he might have been a little tired? He, he goes and he falls asleep under the broom tree and an angel has to come and wake him up and say, you got to eat something, Elijah. And as soon as he eats, what does he do? He falls back asleep again. Have you ever been that kind of tired? I'll sleep anywhere under whatever tree. An angel's going to have to wake me up in this situation. I'd be tired too if I went through all of the emotional and spiritual battle that took place in chapter 18. There's the 17-mile run followed by a 120-mile march to his current position. Yeah, I'd be tired. He's got fatigue and he is sleeping here, but now it's time to eat again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. Come on, Elijah, you can't just sleep, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Elijah says, get some more food. I'm sorry, God says to Elijah, get some more food in you. I've got a journey ahead of you. And he takes Elijah to Mount Horeb, which has another name in the Old Testament, right? For a gold star. What is that other name? Yeah, that's right, Mount Sinai. It is a mountain of significance in the Old Testament, isn't it? It is a place where God establishes relationship with his people. It is the place where God first reveals his name and says, my people can call me, I am, I am. It is the place where a little while later, God reveals himself to his people as he comes in all sorts of amazing and spectacular wonders. There's fire and wind and lightning upon the mountain. And he tells his people, I want to enter into covenant relationship with you and delivers to them a law of love. Love God and love others because I have loved you first. 
This is the mountain of relationship. It is the mountain of first meeting. And he calls Elijah to this mountain where Elijah goes and, as I would have, hides in a cave. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, God has not asked him this question before. Why is that? Because up until now, everywhere Elijah has gone is exactly where God told him to go. But when he runs away from the capital city in fear, he is out on his own. And God wants to know, Elijah, what's going on? What's taking place right now? And here's Elijah's response to that. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Why does Elijah say he is discouraged? Because he's alone. I'm the only one left, Elijah says. In his discouragement, is he exaggerating the situation a little bit? Does all of Israel want him dead at this point? Didn't all of Israel just fall down and declare the Lord, he is God? Now, no doubt Jezebel wants him dead, and Jezebel probably has people out searching for him in order to make sure that happens. But as happens sometimes with us, in our discouragement, we feel like things are worse than they actually are. And in his discouragement, things look worse than they actually are here. Anyone else ever experienced that? Ever been through that in your discouragement? Well, here is God's response to Elijah. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? The fire and the wind and the earthquake remind us of God's amazing presence on this mountain when he delivered the covenant law to his people. It also has to be a reminder to Elijah of all of the miraculous things that he just saw in the previous chapter. And God communicates to him, I'm not always in those things. He wasn't in any of the spectacular any of the astounding, any of the miraculous. Instead, he comes to Elijah, not just in a whisper, but in a low whisper. You have to be close to someone to hear a whisper. You have to be close to someone to hear a low whisper. God wants Elijah to understand, I, I'm close to you. I've brought you to this mountain of first meeting to help you understand that this is about relationship, not about astounding wonders. And in response to God's question, Elijah says this. See if any of this sounds familiar. Oops. Sorry, one more. And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Does that sound familiar? 
I, I didn't make a mistake and just copy down verse 10 twice. It is word for word exactly what he just said. God, nobody else cares. Nobody else is following after you. I am all by myself in this. And in response to this, God is going to tell Elijah that he needs to go and anoint some important people. Here's God's response to Elijah. And the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Ebal-Maholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God has Elijah go and anoint two people that are going to be kings. And what is being communicated in those kings who are being anointed is that the house of Ahab is coming to an end. These people are going to be those who bring that house to an end. But then he has him go and anoint his successor as prophet. A man named Elisha who will be with him for the remainder of his life. Elisha. Elijah and Elisha. Right? Isn't that challenging? Wouldn't it have been easier for the sake of our memory if God had had him anoint somebody with a different name? Do you ever go, wait a minute, was that Elijah or was that Elisha in that account? It would have been so much easier if it had been Bob, right? Elijah and Bob hanging out. But that, that isn't the way that it went. He went and anointed Elisha, who would spend the rest of his life with him and then succeed him as prophet. In this account, Elijah's battling discouragement. He expresses that discouragement to God and God gives him some remedies for that discouragement. And I want us to look at three different reasons that, we, that Elijah is discouraged in this passage and three different remedies that God gives him within this passage for that discouragement. The first cause is this. The first cause is fatigue. Elijah is discouraged because of fatigue. Can you imagine how fatigued you would be if you went through what he just went through? The spiritual and emotional battles, all of the running, all of the hiking for 120 miles. He is fatigued at this point. You think you might be tired after a day like that. Fatigue is one of the biggest contributors to discouragement in our life. Even when we have nothing to be discouraged about, in the midst of deep fatigue, we can feel discouraged. And if we have something small to be discouraged about and we are fatigued, it can be magnified and look large. I have talked to so many parents over the last 20-whatever years who have small children who are experiencing discouragement primarily because of the fatigue involved in that stage of life. Right? I, I see a couple of you that may be able to say amen to this. Right? The, the diaper changes and the no full nights of sleep and the feedings and, the, and, and there's nothing actually wrong in life. There's just a discouragement that comes with the deep level of fatigue that is being experienced during that time. Let me encourage you as someone whose kids are further along in that journey, there is rest later on. Unless, unless you get a puppy, but that's a story for a different time. Uh, my wife will tell you that I experience on some Sundays 
a small dose of discouragement because when I go home in the afternoon, I'm just fatigued. And, and so my wife will ask me while I'm sitting at the table as we're about to eat lunch a question, and I'll say, I don't know. Whatever. What does it matter? Right? I kind of take on this Eeyore persona during this time. Why am I discouraged? Nothing is actually wrong. I'm just fatigued. And then what happens? I eat. I go and cuddle with my wife on the couch. I fall asleep. I wake up. And everything looks better after a little bit of rest. Because that's God's designed remedy, isn't it? For this challenge of fatigue. God's designed remedy for fatigue is rest. Elijah sleeps. Then he eats. Then he sleeps again. If you come here today and you are wiped out and you are fatigued, it is distinctly possible that God's application for this message for you is to take a nap this afternoon. Right? This may be the most popular sermon application I've ever given. Right? If you are battling fatigue, go home and take a nap. Find a way to rest. God asks us to intentionally build that rest into our system, into our schedules. In the Old Testament, he builds it right into the Ten Commandments so that his people would make sure that they are resting. It's that essential for us. Now, you may be saying, okay, Matt, this is nice, all of this talk about rest. But you're a pastor, you can do that. You work one day a week, right? And that's fair, but my wife has a lot on her plate, and so I have seen busy. And all of us, no matter how busy or how open our schedules are, have to be intentional about building rest into our schedules. One of the things that I have seen that steals our genuine rest are our screens. Now, I know some people don't rest enough because they're workaholics, but I think for far more What steals our genuine rest and recreation are our screens. That we should go to sleep and be refreshed, but instead we watch two more shows in the show that we're binging. That we should take a nap and be refreshed and remade, but instead we keep scrolling through social media or we keep scrolling through media. And I want to encourage all of us not to let amusement rob you of recreation. Right? Please don't let amusement rob you of recreation. These are important words. Recreation, to, to recreate, to be refreshed. God has built certain things into life that refresh us, that get us ready for the, for, for the rest of the day or for the next day. Sleep is a big one of those that we need in order to be refreshed and keep going. When I make it to the gym and work out regularly, I feel better in my body, in my mind, in my attitude, because God has designed us for that kind of recreation. When my wife and I go on a walk with our little puppy, there is something that is refreshing to me in that. Yesterday, to sit outside on my deck when it was 72 degrees by myself and just sing praises to the Lord, there is something refreshing to my soul about that. And God has designed us to participate in that kind of recreation that recreates us, that refreshes us. But one of the primary things that gets in the way of that is amusement, right? What does amusement mean? Amuse. Ah means not or without. Muse means to think. It literally means to not think or without thought. And the world has provided us all kinds of opportunities on our screens to simply not think. 
It's not the same as recreation or refreshment to our soul, to our minds, to our bodies. It's simply a way for us to waste time. Now, this is not a message where I'm saying, you should never watch a show and you should never go on social media. There are times that it's great to do that and that it can even be refreshing at times. But we should never allow amusement, our time on our screens, to steal recreation and rest that God has designed us to get. We need to sleep, we we need to rest, we need to do the recreation that brings us new life the following day. Don't allow amusement to rob you of recreation. Uh, What's the first cause of discouragement we see in Elijah here? Fatigue. What's the remedy for that? Rest. God asks us to build in rest to our lives. But when Elijah rests, you'll notice his discouragement does not go away entirely because it is not the only cause of discouragement that Elijah is dealing with. Cause number two for Elijah and his discouragement is what? He feels isolated. When he expresses himself to God and why he feels so discouraged, what does he say? I'm the only one left. I'm it. I'm all by myself. You ever experience that kind of discouragement that comes with feeling isolated? I'm hurting and no one cares. I failed and there's no one else who seems to be failing. You ever experience that kind of isolation that leads to discouragement? I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had over the course of the last eight months with people who have experienced discouragement because in our society right now, we are trying to produce intentional isolation. And in the midst of that isolation, person after person has talked to me about how discouraged they are to not be a part of their normal communities and their normal relationships, right? It causes us to ask, is the cure worse than the disease in these situations? What is God's solution to the discouragement that comes from isolation? God's solution is to be a part of devoted community, community that is single-minded in their pursuit of God like you are. He assures Elijah, there are 7,000 others who have never bowed the knee to Baal. You are surrounded by thousands of others who are with you here, Elijah. Not only that, but I'm now going to assign you a partner in ministry who is going to walk with you each and every day of your life until you are called home. We need that kind of community in our lives in the battle that we face. Uh, When when I was in college, I would go to the weight room and do my my weightlifting for football before classes sometimes. And when you go and do your lifting before classes, the weight room is empty. There, There might be one or two other people in there. And it is so hard in that environment to push through and get all of your lifting done in that kind of environment where it is silent and you are all on your own in order to complete that. But there were other times that I would go to the weight room in order to complete my lifting after class. And the whole football team would be in there, and people would be surrounding you as you're lifting, cheering you on. People would be encouraging you. There were groups that were all lifting together. It was so much easier to complete your lifting in that kind of environment. 
And as important as that may be in that kind of environment, it's so much more important in our pursuit and relationship with God. We need people who are running after Jesus with us. That is the way that he has designed this. It's one of the reasons that you're here this morning. You could go online and listen to much better preachers. No, really. No, don't ever want to object at once. No. <laughs> right, you could go online. You, you really could. But what are you doing here? Because you recognize that God has designed us to walk through with family, to walk through in community with each other as we spend time pursuing him. And so we come together, we join together online if we need to, in order to spend time together. Because God's designed for his people that we'd be in relationship. That's why we talk about life groups so much. Because we all need those people who are running towards Jesus with us. And if you don't have that kind of community, by all means, contact us. We want to help you be a part of that kind of community. Isolation, feeling isolated is a cause for discouragement. I'm the only one left. God's remedy for that, devoted community. People who are running towards Jesus with us. Now, the final cause of discouragement that we see in this passage is this. Measuring worth through achievements. Elijah is measuring his worth through his achievements. Where do we see that? We see that in verse 4, don't we? Where he expresses exactly why he doesn't want to be alive anymore. I don't want to be alive anymore, God, because I am no better than my forefathers. No better than my ancestors, he says. What does he mean by that? I think when Elijah went back to the capital city, what he wanted and what he thought would happen is that the king and queen, based on what God had done, would fall on their knees and would lead Israel into full repentance. And the nation would move forward, king and queen leading the nation into, into full uh, single-minded devotion to God. But that isn't what happens at all. And what he experiences is opposition from the king and queen. Hearty opposition. And he recognizes as the king and queen go, so the nation is going to go. They are going to continue to lead Israel into idolatry. And for the first time, what does Elijah realize? I'm not going to accomplish this. This one great goal that I have as a prophet, to see all of Israel follow after God in single-minded devotion, if the king and queen stand in opposition, I'm not going to experience success. I'm not going to achieve this one great prophetic goal that I have. I am no better than my forefathers. I'm, I'm no better than my ancestors. He's measuring his worth through whether or not he has achieved this, whether or not he has gained success. Anyone else ever struggle with this? When I was in school, I had all kinds of expectations for how my life would go in classes, in sports, in relationship with girls. And there were areas in which my life didn't meet those expectations that I had. And what did I experience at those times? discouragement because my life didn't meet those expectations of achievement, of success that I had put forward. As an adult, there are ways in which I pictured my life going in work, in ministry, in my family, in my relationships. And there are times where I'm tempted to look at my life and say, well, wait a minute, I thought I'd be here 
but instead I'm here. And what is the temptation in those situations? To be discouraged. Because maybe I haven't achieved or seen success in every way that I thought would be possible. Seeing your personal value through the lens of success and achievement will always lead to discouragement because that is not how God designed us to measure our worth and our value. Right? So what is the remedy to this? Instead of measuring worth through achievement and success, the remedy is to measure worth through relationship with God. Why does, Eli- why does God call Elijah to march 40 days to Mount Horeb in order to teach him a lesson? He was already in the wilderness by himself. He could have taught him the lesson right there. He could have taught Elijah the lesson anywhere. But instead, he takes him specifically to the mountain of meeting, to the mountain of covenant relationship, in order to teach Elijah a lesson that life isn't defined by whether or not you're successful, whether there's achievement, how many of these great and miraculous things are going to happen. Life is defined by the fact that you have relationship with me as expressed in this low whisper that I am close to you and you are close to me. What is the remedy for uh, measuring worth through achievements and success? The remedy is measuring our worth through relationship with God. That is the gospel solution. Instead of measuring our worth and achievement based upon what I have done, Instead of measuring my worth or achievement based on accomplishments as measured against the idols that our society has, I measure my worth and achievement based upon what Jesus has done on my behalf and the fact that God has brought me into his family and he now calls me his child. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, I, I am now his masterwork. In the Greek, the, his poema, his master poem, if I am in his kingdom. And so I am no longer defined, I'm no longer given worth by whether or not I've accomplished certain things, by whether or not I've been successful in certain things. My worth and my value come entirely from my relationship with God and how He defines me. And today I just want you to walk away remembering that. That as you go about your week this week, your worth and your value are not defined by how successful you are or how much you achieve over the course of this week. Your worth and your value are defined by your relationship with God and how deeply He loves you and how He has called you to be a part of His family and how He calls you child. One of the primary ways that we remind ourselves that our relationship with God is the primary thing that determines our worth and our value is by praising him over and over again. By saying, God, life is about you and I am defined by you and I want to invite the worship team to come up and for us to praise God now together as a church family and I'd invite you to pray with me. Father, we are so thankful that in the midst of discouragement we can come to you We're thankful that our value and our worth in this life is not determined by whether or not we are successful according to the world's measures about whether or not we achieve enough for your kingdom, but that our value and our worth are determined by 
our relationship with you. We think of what you said to your disciples, that they should not rejoice that the demons submit to them, but instead rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And we recognize that our rejoicing, our worth, our value are all about being a part of your family, and we thank you for that. And now we praise your name as your children and give you thanks for all you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.